Uh, as we begin this morning, let me tell you the story of a man, uh, Lieutenant John Blanchard, I believe is his name. Yeah. Lieutenant Blanchard, or actually a story about he and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Blanchard, how they met uh, years and years ago, right before he got shipped off to World War II to fight in the European theater. He'd come across a book in a uh, secondhand bookstore that was more common back then there. And as he bought the, or browsed through the book, it wasn't necessarily the writings of the author that captured his attention, so much as it was the, the soft handwriting in the margins, the notes. As, as Lieutenant Blanchard would read the book and read these, these notes, it reflected to him a very thoughtful mind and an insightful soul. And so he looked through the book, because it was a secondhand book, and found the name of the previous owner, Hollis Maynell. So he wrote a letter to uh, Miss Maynell, uh, introducing himself and, and basically asking if they could correspond. Well, the next day, he was shipped off to the European theater to fight in the Second World War. Over the course of a couple of years, uh, they got to know each other through the mail, and, and every letter was like a seed falling on fertile ground. A, a budding romance began to grow. Uh, and one day, Lieutenant Blanchard asked Miss Maynell for a photo of her. And she refused, saying that if he really cared for her, it didn't really matter what, they, what she looked like. Well, the time came for him to be shipped back to the States and decide to arrange for a meeting. And so their first meeting was going to be in the Grand Central Station of New York, 7 p.m. She said, you'll know who I am because I'll be wearing a red rose in my lapel. So there he stood watching the crowds of people going back and forth, looking for a woman whose heart he loved, though face he had never seen. Let me read you the words of Lieutenant Blanchard himself. So as I was standing there looking for this woman, a young woman came toward me. Her figure long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she looked like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. I guess after the Second World War, soldiers had an easy time meeting women. Almost uncontrollably, I made a step closer to her. Then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat, She was more than plump. Her thick-ankled feet were thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow after her, yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle to them. I didn't hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. Maybe this would not be love after all. But maybe it would be something precious. Perhaps something better than love. A friendship for which I had been and must always be grateful for. So I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman. Even though while I spoke... I honestly did feel choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet with me. Would you have dinner with me tonight? 
The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile and said, I don't know what's going on, young man, but that young woman in the lady green suit just went by and she begged me to wear this rose in my lapel. And she said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you that she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. (laughs) She said this was some kind of a test, a judgment of the kind of man you are. Well, I wonder how you feel about that story. If you're a woman, you probably like it. (laughs) Who's this woman to test the man's intentions and affections after all? Shouldn't affection and, and, and love be accepted by virtue of the fact that someone actually professes it? I mean, to have to prove the the quality of someone's love, doesn't that denigrate the quality itself? Isn't issues of the heart, like romance and our personal faith journey and our personal feelings, the kinds of things that are beyond the court of public opinion? Aren't they too taboo to test? Aren't we wrong to stand in judgment of those kinds of things? Our culture seems to think so. But the Bible doesn't necessarily agree that such personal matters are beyond judgment, does it? Not at all. As a matter of fact, far from a a personal, untested faith, the Bible always holds out a faith that matters, a faith that has real substance to it, a faith that makes a difference. Faith in the Bible is never mere sentiment. It's never mere personal feelings. But faith is always clothed in sacrifice. Faith is always steeled in fortitude and lived out in the way we live our lives, not just in the big moments, but most importantly, in the little moments. The question is, though, is how do you know which kind of faith you actually have? Because unless we're testing it and evaluating it, it's very easy to confuse one for the other. And that's why a test is important. Now call it whatever you want. You can call it a test. You can call it a judgment. The point is the same. It's to hold the individual who makes the profession accountable that the way they live lives up to the things that are coming out of their mouth. Makes sense. Now at the end of what is called the Olivet Discourse... Uh, Jesus has been teaching a series of parables, key parables, all on what it means to be a disciple of Christ that culminates in this final parable of the sheep and the goats. And the point he's trying to drive home is that there is an accountability to those who would call themselves the disciples of Christ. There is an accountability to those those who would call themselves his followers. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. And and I don't have a three-point sermon. I've actually got a six-point sermon. But don't worry, we will get out of here just in the normal time, most likely. So here's the six points real quick. You don't have to write them down. You'll see them on the screen eventually. This parable reminds us of six things. Number one, that judgment is coming. Number two, that Jesus is the judge. Number three, in the end, there are only two types of people to be judged. Number four, that there'll be many surprises on that judgment day. Number five, it's all about a relationship with Christ himself. And finally, number six, this judgment is permanent and fixed. So that's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray and ask the Lord to teach the, bless the teaching of his word, and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for this morning that we've shared together, the songs that we have sung, the truths that we have reminded ourselves about. Lord, we thank you that your word is so comprehensive in so many ways it addresses the way we live. Father, we thank you that you are not satisfied merely to get professions of faith. You want lives transformed by their faith. So, Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see in your word this morning what you would have us to know, understand, and live 
so that we might be faithful and obedient to what you've called us to. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got six points, so we need to get through them pretty quickly. Let's roll through them one at a time. This parable of the sheep and the goats reminds us that judgment is coming. Look at verse 31. Matthew writes on the, from the lips of Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, period, stop right there. When the Son of Man comes. I love that the fact, the scripture is very clear that there is a definitive time when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will come again. Life, history, is not an endless loop of, of cyclical events and circumstances. It's not like the Hindu concept of karma. It's not like the Disney concept of a circle of life. Sorry, Lion King fans, that's not what the Bible presents. The Bible presents that history, far from being cyclical, is a linear arc with a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Bible records the beginning of that history in the book of Genesis, the middle of that history with the the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the end of that history with the new heavens and the new earth. This parable in Matthew 25 is reminding us that prior to that end, there is a judgment as we go into that last chapter of recorded human history. But the problem is... When we read these kinds of parables, it, gr- it kind of grates against us, almost like fingernails on a chalkboard, because in our culture, it's popular not to judge, right? We live in a culture where we, we don't like judgments. It's something you hear all the time, don't judge, don't judge me. You've heard that. We don't like judgments, but here's the thing, that, that, that here's the sticker. We all want judgment when you think about it. If you've ever been in despair over the inequalities of the world, whether it's racial or gender or economic, if you've ever been upset at the wrongs of this world and you cry out to make it right, you are calling for a judgment. You are calling for justice. You are calling for the wrongs to be made right, for the equalities to be made equal. That's a judgment. So though on one level our culture is against any kinds of judgments, we go through our lives longing for judgment. But we hear, so we've got these mixed messages in our culture that makes it hard to navigate. You ever heard somebody say, uh, I've been told, hey, don't judge me, you know? Or, Or this one, who are you to judge? You ever heard someone say that? Who are you to judge? You know what I like to say when I, when people tell me that? I just simply say, well, who are you to ask me? Who am I to judge? Now, I'm not just trying to give them a verbal punch in the gut. I'm actually trying to highlight for them that you can't escape judgment. Them asking me, who am I to judge, is them passing judgment on me, and I failing that judgment call, so they ask me, who are you to judge? So I simply say, well, who are you to ask me, who am I to judge? And so I just kind of point out to them the hypocrisy or the fact that we can't get away from making judgment calls all the time. Does that make sense? But see, what they're getting at is very true. The reason they say, well, who are you to judge, is it's implied in that you're not worthy enough to make a judgment. Now, on on a lot of cases, that's absolutely true. Like what we're talking about this morning, Matthew 25, I'm not worthy to make that judgment. As a matter of fact, no one's worthy to make that judgment, at least none of us. And that leads us to the second thing this parable teaches us, that Jesus Christ is the judge. Look back in the passage here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
You see, none of us are worthy to judge, but Scripture teaches us because none of us are worthy, Jesus is worthy. He's the one that passes judgment. Notice this phrase, the Son of Man. This is the phrase that Jesus used more than any other to describe himself. Now, um, I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to go there because I'll read it for you. This title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel's vision of kind of the end of all things. And during this time, rabbinic literature had no idea who the Son of Man character was. It was a mystery to them, which is why we think Jesus used this title more than other, any other to identify himself. Partly because of who he was and the fact that people couldn't make sense of this character. And so he was trying to define it for them. Here it is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision, he writes this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus used this title, Son of Man, because it perfectly captured who he was. The rabbinic literature couldn't make sense of this. Who is this character that's a human being, a son of man, but he has a kingdom that will never expire, a dominion that will never end? They didn't understand how that could fit. Well, we understand now Jesus was the perfect candidate for that, fully God, fully man. So he says, the Son of Man, and in this parable, when the Son of Man comes in his second coming, he will judge, separating the sheep from the goats. So this parable is a reminder that we not only need to keep the category, uh, the expression that, hey, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus loves me, we also have to have room for the category that Jesus judges me. That he's my savior, but he's also my judge. And that leads us to the third point. That this parable reminds us that in the end, in this judgment, there are only two types of people. Now this parable is describing a very common um, scene in pastoral Palestine where you'd have a shepherd at the end of a hot day. Uh, They would be separating his herd. The sheep love the open night air to enjoy the hills and the graze on the hillsides. Uh, Goats, on the other hand, become very cold, so they get huddled together. So the shepherd's job was to make sure that he got all the sheep on one side and all the goats on the other. And this is a great metaphor for what Jesus was getting at because there was never a third option. You didn't have a goat who wanted to hang out with the sheep or a sheep that wanted to be a goat. They always did their own thing separately. It was very clear one from the other. And this became a great metaphor for the decision that Christ brings to lives. So Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this, Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So if you're a note taker, write down Mark chapter 9, verse 38 to 40, because Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, making the same exact point. You see, in the Gospels, gospels there, there's no category for kind of being Christian. Just like for women, there's no category for kind of being pregnant. Right? You, you are either one or you are the other. There's no in-between. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't room for questions, that there isn't room for uh, investigating and and being more open to the gospel than not. 
What it's saying is that at the end of the day, Jesus' demand on our lives is a demand to make a choice. Will you choose him and your life be lived in accordance and conformity to what he says is best? Or will you choose yourself and you live your life according to what you think is best? There's a, been an apologetic tool. An apo- that doesn't mean saying sorry. An apologetic is to make a defense for something called the trilemma argument. And uh, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis captures it best in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, he writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, if you're a visual learner, I put together a decision tree. If you're in the business world, you're familiar with these. It basically shows you what your options are, and they're actually very clear. So number one, Jesus claimed to be God. Well, either his claim was false or his claim was true. It can't be a third option, so let's say his claim was false. So either he knew his claim was false or he didn't know his claim was false. If he did know his claim was false, he made deliberate misrepresentation. So he's a liar or possibly a demon, or a hypocrite, or a fool. If he didn't know his claim was false, then he was sincerely deluded, and he's a lunatic. But if his claim was true, you can either accept that Jesus is Lord and live in light of those implications, or you can reject it, and you're lost. This is the trilemma argument used throughout church history that C.S. Lewis so beautifully puts together in his book, Mere Christianity. It's that stark contrast that either or, there's no third option, that black and white, that's so rare in our culture, that makes point number four so true. And point number four is that this parable reminds us that there will be many surprises on Judgment Day. Now notice, notice in the passage, look at verse 34, back in uh, Matthew 25, Verse 34, notice that the surprises in this passage are both delightful and terrifying. Verse 34, then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then look at verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, did you pick up that Jesus is describing the righteous 
in such a way that the righteous themselves didn't realize that they were doing anything grand or anything particularly religious or spectacular. the, The actions that Jesus is mentioning are actually really kind of mundane, aren't they? You fed somebody who was hungry. You gave somebody who was thirsty some water. Somebody who was a stranger, you welcomed them in. It's none of the big kind of Torah uh, prayers that they could recite. It wasn't massive amounts of sacrifice that they would haul up to the temple for everyone to see. These are truly surprised that the, the actions of their normal everyday life are having such huge eternal implications here. Just as those on the left, the, the ones that Jesus is calling the goats, the one he's calling cursed, are especially surprised that they're not being awarded or rewarded, and they're actually cast out. They're very surprised that they're on the left-hand side. The assumption in the parable is that they believe that they would be just like the ones on the right, welcomed into the God's eternal kingdom. Equally important to notice that their condemnation, the people on the left, Notice, it's not for atrocious things they've done. It's not for wicked deeds. There's not a litany or a list of murder and debauchery and all those kinds of things. In this parable, what they're condemned for was simply not exercising just practical acts of mercy and compassion and kindness that so clearly should mark the people of God. You see, this is one of those parables that... that that often remind me that God's economy of doing things is so unlike our own, isn't it? So Jesus says, you want to be first? Be the last. You want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. Again, this is another reminder that the way God thinks about things and the way God judges and analyzes things is so radically different from the way we would do it. This this parable reminds me that that probably the most common question in heaven is going to be one word. Who wants to guess what that question is going to be? What's that? Did I hear somebody brave enough to throw it out there? What was it? Why? Close. You know what that question's going to be? In my mind, I could be wrong. You know what it's going to be? Really? <laughs> That's going to be the question. Really? He-, he got really him? And just as a matter of fact, you're going to say, really? He didn't? I think that's going to be, well, and at least initially, probably the most common question in heaven Rodiver? Really? Really? Him? That's how far the standards come? Ah, that's going to be probably the most common question in heaven. Isn't that the question that these guys are asking right now? Really? When did we see you? The same question they're asking. God, really? Now, now notice the six verbs that we have from verses 35 to 39. So, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger. They, they are not intended for us to read and then say, okay, that's what God is looking for. So, we need to create and be involved in things like food bank, hospital visitation, jail ministry. That's not the point. The point of Jesus listing these six major and most common forms of suffering was to indicate the suffering of the world as a whole. It wasn't to create the kind of checklist of things that we can check off to feel like, okay, I'm earning my salvation, I'm okay. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan that we went through a couple weeks ago, the point being made is God's people ought to be marked by compassion and mercy. And not just in the big moments where everyone's watching, but most particularly in those moments where nobody's watching. That's when it matters most. 
And the point here is that the righteous were marked by compassion and mercy to those who were in need, and the wicked were not marked by compassion and mercy. Now, in addition, the fact that Jesus is dressing these actions in very common, mundane, ordinary kinds of things is an indication that the emphasis was just on the way we live our lives day in and day out and not uh, what we might call formal ministries and acts of philanthropy. It's more the attitude of the heart that's just coming out. That fuels kinds of those kinds of ministries, but without which that heart, those ministries would never exist. To put it clearly, you can be involved in, in homeless ministry, right? You can be involved in efforts to help the homeless and still be very hardened to the homeless, can't you? Right? Just like we can be involved in all kinds of ministry and miss the very heart of those ministries because our heart itself hasn't been softened and changed by the gospel. And so this parable is an attempt to shake our confidence in formal kinds of ministries and formal acts of philanthropy. Because anyone can enter into those moments and and go through the routine. But Jesus is not looking for that. He's looking for transformed lives. We've seen it all the time, whether it's a celebrity or or politician in a classic photo op. What are they going to do? They're at the the food bank, right? They're serving a meal. And then you get a YouTube video that goes viral that shows that their, their real character is completely contrary to what the photo op is revealing. Same idea. It's not those big moments that all of us can kind of enter into. It's the moments that mark the everyday life that really reveals what's going on in our hearts. And that's what this parable is trying to shake our confidence in formal ministry and push us towards true compassion, true mercy. God is not interested in formalities of a religious or irreligious type. The king is interested in genuine transformation that comes from a heart that's responding to the gospel of grace. So, So here's the question. Well, then we say, well, if externally they can look the same, if externally they're almost identical because we can't see the heart, how do I know and how do I grow and make sure I'm the one on the right and not the deceived one on the left? And that's the the fifth point of the parable. It reminds us that it's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The heart of the Christian faith is this relationship. It is not necessarily, excuse me, it is not the actions that flow from the relationship. It's the relationship itself. Now, notice in the passage that the blessings and cursings turn on the same question and response. So in verse 37 and verse 44, the same question is asked, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or imprisoned or sick? Both groups ask that, and the response is the same to both groups, verse 40 and 45. When you did it to one of the least of these, or when you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it or didn't do it to me. The eternal state of these individuals turns on their actions as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ and his people. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that um, the response to the gospel, to the person of Jesus Christ, is one that transforms people such that it transforms the way we live in everyday moments of life. Not just in the big things that everyone else sees, but in the little ways we interact with people, particularly those who are in need. And here's the most frightening thing um, as we read this this parable of, of judgment. 
And I want to be clear that our, our ultimate standing is our faith in Christ. We are not earning our salvation. I'm not teaching that by any means. But we are evaluating the nature of that faith. The most frightening thing about this passage um, is that this judge is going to be completely honest, completely fair, and completely impartial. And I find that the most frightening thing of all. And here's something, I'm going to say something else. The better you understand the gospel, the more you're terrified that this judge is going to be completely honest and completely just and completely fair. And the less you understand the gospel, I think the more you kind of think you want that. Is that confusing to you? Let me unpack that. When I stand before God's throne, I don't want justice. I don't want the record of how I did and how I didn't do to be brought out there. I will fail. I do not have the morality, the faithfulness, or the consistency to stand under that scrutiny. When I come before the Lord, I don't want justice. You know what I want? I want mercy. When I come before the judge, I don't want to say, hey, hey, look at all the things I've done. Check it out. I was a pastor. That ain't going to get me a hill of beans. When I come before that judge, I'm going to say, look, you've got every reason in the world to damn me to hell. And then some. And if you don't know some others, I've got more for you. <laughs> I don't want your justice. I want your mercy. Because I, de- I don't deserve, I want what I don't deserve. You ever hear people say, I want what I deserve. Man, not when it comes to the things of God. No, you don't. You want mercy. And that judge will say, Rick, I'm so glad to see you. And you're right, you get it. Because I've got this stack of things that could condemn you. Oh. But I've got mercy because you've got a great attorney. You've got a great advocate, my son. And he says, Father, I've taken care of his account. I've taken care of his debt. And all that I have, I'm giving Rick. And he's going to say, all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm bringing you in as one of my sons. That's what's terrifying. That if we have to, when we do face him, as this parable says, judgment is sure. None of us will stand on our own merits. None of us would want to. We want to stand on the merits of another, Jesus Christ, and the mercy given to us because he did what I cannot. And that's what we need to realize. And so how we make sure that we are the ones on the right and not the ones on the left is actually recognizing that we were the least of these. Something I taught you all two weeks ago in reading the parable of the Good Samaritan is we often look at the characters and we associate one with the other. And we do that to a certain degree here. But do you know the characters we need to associate with first in this parable is the ones that are just referenced as the least of these. In other words... We will grow in gospel-fueled compassion and mercy when we first realize, I was one of the least of these. I was hungry, and Christ fed me because he's the bread of life. I was thirsty, and I found Christ to be the living water. I was naked and exposed, but Christ covered me in his righteousness. I was a stranger, and Christ brought me into the family as one of his own. I was sick and dying, and Christ was my good physician. I was on my way to hell. I was in prison, and Christ set me free. Those are the same six things that they say to one another. And when you realize I was that, you were one of the least of these, and you received compassion and mercy, that's how that relationship with Christ grows. That's how compassion and mercy grows from your heart towards others. It's not by pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. It's not by doing the thing we've got to do. It's by recognizing I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, and I got it all in Christ. And not because I deserved any of it. And the sixth and final uh, 
reminder of this parable, I told you I'd get you out of here at time, is that's this. This parable reminds us that this judgment is permanent and fixed. Notice verse 46, last verse in the chapter. And these, the king is saying, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I just want to be real clear. God did not create hell. I mean, we don't hear that word too often in our culture. God did not create hell for human beings. That was never the intent. Matthew 25 tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. What a horrifying experience now in our fallen state to have human beings cast in something that was made for the devil himself and his angels. But that's what happens here. Because those who reject Christ are making the same decision that the devil and his angels did when they rejected Christ as king over them. This past week, uh, I served three days in a jury over in Santa Ana. And, uh, you know, uh, there's always, even though we reached a verdict, or there was a verdict reached, in human courts, there's always an appeal. Even if there's a guilt or innocence or you find for the plaintiff or the defendant, there's always the process of an appeal court that you can look forward to or go back to. And that's because human courts are fallible and human courts are limited in their perspective. Well, this is the final court of arbitration. And God is limitless in his perspective. And God's not fallible at all. His judgments are sure and firm and fixed. And so we want to make sure that we are on the right side of that judgment. Abe Lincoln said this, You can fool all the people some of the time, and you can fool some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. You can't fool God any of the time. This parable is a reminder of that fact. Now, John Blanchard, Lieutenant Blanchard, the soldier, I mentioned at the beginning this morning, he passed the test. He chose what was right over what would have been just easy, and in his case, he ended up with the girl after all. For us, it is easy to forget that there is a judgment that's coming. It is easy to forget that we actually are, even though saved by grace, accountable for the way we live our lives. It is easy to substitute formal religion or philanthropy if you're not a religious person. Uh, It's easy to substitute those for true change. But the right thing is to recognize that you were one of the least of these and you were given compassion and mercy and it was extended to you in lavish amounts so that you might recognize your need and the grace given to you so that you could extend it to others as well. And that's the right thing to do. We pray that God enables us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God, gracious to remind us you are loving and merciful and kind, but you're also holy and just. And Lord, though we've looked at a parable to to really make us consider the way we live and consider what we base our lives on, we thank you that our salvation is firmly fixed in the works of Christ, not in our own. And Lord, we receive that and we rejoice in that. And Father, I pray that if anyone here is not confident of their standing before you, they're not confident about what verdict you will give on that day, that they would speak to either me or one of the pastors or somebody in this room and not leave unsure if they will be on your right hand or left. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.